0: Please be seated. Folks, I want to introduce to you, it's a real pleasure to have a good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Drew Witt. Father Drew is the lead pastor uh, of, what's the name of your church? i kidding, kidding. (laughs) He's the lead pastor of Gathering Midtown, which is an AMIA church in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, He's a huge fan of both Dr. Pepper and Jesus, not in that particular order, Tim Malambry. (laughs) but he does like them both an awful lot. You know how uh, touring bands have a list of requirements for when they show up? I think it was Van Halen that wanted all the brown M&M's taken out of their mix. Drew had one. He needed a six-pack of Dr. Pepper. Straight. He comes hard, Doug. He comes hard. No brown M&M's and Dr. Pepper. Drew and his lovely wife, Shari, have two young boys, Hayden and Grayson, and Uh, I just ask you to join with me in in, uh, welcoming Father Drew and uh, listening attentively as he brings a sermon on Luke chapter 15 this morning. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do praise you and give you thanks for Drew being with us. We thank you, Lord, for Shari and his boys making this sacrifice that Drew could be with us while he is away. Gracious God, as we turn now to the preaching of your word, we thank you beforehand Because you always accompany the word preached. And we, Lord, pray that your Holy Spirit would come. And as Drew preaches from Luke chapter 15, Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would come upon us and do the work that you desire to do, that you want to do, that we need to be done. So give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and overrule and overwhelm Drew's mouth and his words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said is in accordance with the word of God. What is heard is for the good of God's people. And all this done for the glory of Jesus Christ, our only mediator, the only Savior. Amen. Good
1: morning, it's good to be here. Morning. Good morning. I'm from Texas, and my family always vacationed in Florida, so my body is a little freaked out because when it sees palm trees and smells the salt water, it thinks, hey, you're here to play and rest, but I'm here to work, so it's, it's really confusing to my body. I, um, if I've heard a lot about this church. I usually don't have people behind me when I speak. This is new try to remember you. Um, I've heard a lot about Destin, Florida, and this church. Bishop Green and Gigi are in my congregation, and every Sunday, Gigi walks up to me. Do you, y'all know, I'm sure most of you know them, and uh, Gigi walks up every sun- Sunday. She kisses me on the cheek, and she's like, I'm so glad to see you, Pastor, and it always humbles me because she's got kids older than me, and yet she calls me that, and, um, and they talked very fondly about you all. And I know they'll be here next week. And so it's um, just good to be here. And and it's kind of neat to see how all of us are connected in the wider body of Christ. I have with me um, my Bible and a timer. And usually people are comforted when I show up (laughs) with the timer. It didn't work. Well, I didn't have enough Dr. Pepper, so I wasn't (laughs) awake. Someone didn't get my contract. <laughs> I uh, recently heard a story of a little boy who, for Christmas, asked for a flashlight, like this one, uh, which is like an odd request. Santa's not usually—usually um, usually kids don't ask for a flashlight. He, the boy had gotten in trouble because he would always go in the garage and play with his, his father's t- uh, tools and would open and, and then, you know, would place them everywhere. And his favorite tool that the father had was a flashlight. And he would always get in trouble, and so he wasn't allowed to have a flashlight. So when they took him to see Santa, Santa thought he would say, fire truck. He said, flashlight. So mom and dad got him a flashlight for Christmas that year. He, you know, Christmas morning comes, like all kids, like soon as the sun shines at, at the crack of dawn, it's time to open presents, and they open the presents. The, the parents are still kind of asleep. And in their pajamas. And when the boy opens the flashlight, he is filled with joy. He puts the batteries in, he turns it on, and then he walks up to mom with the flashlight on at 8 a.m. and he says, Mom, let's go find some darkness. (laughs) And the little boy knows something that often we adults forget, and it's that light shines best in darkness. The problem with many of us who have been in church for any amount of time, my, my problem is the longer that I walk with Jesus and the longer I spend time in church, my struggle tends to be the less darkness I'm around and the less darkness that I'm in and the less and, and more and more people that are around me are people who already know Jesus. I was born on a Thursday morning and on Sunday morning I was in the church nursery. No lie, no exaggeration like two and a half days old. That's how they did it back then. You're in church. My dad was the janitor at the church we grew up in. He ran the sound. I grew up in the sound booth back there, and uh, I think I could count on like two hands the amount of Sundays I've missed in my entire life. And that's kind of been my story, is I've got this flashlight, but I really don't know a whole lot of people who are far from Jesus. You know, now, All I know is church people, and by their giving records, probably like half of them don't know Jesus. Just kidding. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying. Luke 15 is a very, very important passage of the Scriptures. Um, It is, without question, the clearest picture of who our God is. The absolute clearest portrait of who the Father, Son, and Spirit is, is Luke 15. If you ever wonder, who is God and what's he like? You read Luke 15. Luke 15 is set up because of what happens in Luke 14. If you study Luke, you would know and you'd find that Luke 14, 15, 16, and the first half of 17 are all one day. We tend to break it up because of the chapter marks, but it's just one day. In Luke 14, the religious throw a party to trap Jesus. It's on the Sabbath. They invite a man who has dropsy, who's got a sickness, and it says they put him in front of Jesus to see what happens. They're trying to trick Jesus and catch him into doing something. And the language in Luke 14 is really very carefully written by Luke the physician. It says that Jesus took the man from them as if he was in their possession, which he was. He heals him, sets him free, and then sends him on his way. And then Jesus stays at this religious dinner party, which was kind of awkward. And then he starts to tell all these parables and stories about how messed up these religious people are. And how next time they throw a party, they shouldn't invite their friends. They should go to the highways and byways and bring all the sick and lame and then throw a party for them. It's a Luke 14. The the Great Banquet. He tells that story. He talks about the cost of discipleship. He talks about what good is salt if it's lost its taste, and all these like really cornerstone teachings that Jesus um, gives, as passed down through the ages, happens at this dinner party that's gone wrong, and it's very awkward. And at the very beginning of Luke fifteen, there's um, two great verses. Verse one, it says the result of that is. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. It's an incredible picture. That because of everything Jesus did and everything he said at this awkward dinner party where the religious um, trap went wrong and he stayed and made everyone uncomfortable, the result was all the people far from God wanted to get close to him and hear what he had to say. And that's one group. Then in verse 2, there's another group. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with with them. So right here in Luke 15, you've got the setting is two groups of people very opposed, and they have two different reactions to the person and work of Jesus. The group of tax collectors, the the people who have uh, turned on Israel um, and have begun to tax Um, Their own people for the sake of Rome, all those people, and the sinners, they love Jesus. The people who are in charge of the church at the time, the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't like Jesus, and Jesus is in the middle, and he keeps teaching. So verse 3 of Luke 15 is, so he told them this parable. And Luke, who's a physician who's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament and is a very detailed, um, detailed writer, he uses the word parable. A publisher came in and put in headings and put out the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable, parable of the prodigal son. And we tend to look at Luke 15 as this collection of three parables, but Luke says it's one parable. He told him this parable, and then it's nothing but red letters till the end of Luke 15. In art, we would call this a triptych. Three paintings, like the ones on the wall over there, that are on individual canvases, but when you put them on the same wall in the same order, it tells a bigger story than just what one of the frames is telling you. In movies, we call it a trilogy, like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or the Hunger Games. It's, it's a set of three, or if you're Hunger Games, four movies. You get the point, though. Where well, you can't just watch one. You have to watch all of them in order to see what the grand narrative is. That's Luke 15. We get in danger when we just... Focus on one. But if you focus on all three, you get the Trinitarian view of who God is. And I we'll have a slide to put on the screen so you can see it. Often, we um, artists have focused wrongly on the sheep or the coin or the son. But they're not the main characters in the parable. The main character in the parable is the son, the spirit, and the father. This is who we see um, God in Luke 15. We see in the first movement, the suffering work of the son. That God is like a shepherd who would leave 99 and go risk his life and the, the life, livelihood of the 99 to go find the one who's gotten uh, picked off by the wolves. And it's a work of suffering. High risk. Be honest, if I'm the shepherd, I'd say I think keeping the 99 is more important <laughs> and leaving the 99 to go get the one, but that's not what God does. God leaves the 99. He goes and gets the one. Next, we see the, the searching activity of the Spirit. God is like a woman who would turn the house up to look for the coin. And then lastly, the singing heart of the Father, that God is like this broken-hearted Father on the front porch preparing the fattened calf, a little bit too trigger-happy to throw a party. You like, see, if you notice, like he like really wants to throw a party like quickly, like the son hasn't even come in and described, and he hasn't even apologized. He's just halfway down the driveway, and all of a sudden, the father's like, party time. <laughs> <laughs> we, but most of us would not associate God with someone who's quick to throw a party. And yet, what we know is he's already been fattening the calf. He's been expecting this. He's been waiting. He's on the front porch. He runs. He does something shameful in that culture. He, he's get the robe, get the ring, strike up the band, throw a party. That's the God That Jesus describes in Luke 15, which is so counter to most people's view of God. Most people think God's this cosmic killjoy who's ready to strike you with a lightning bolt. That is not what Luke 15 says. None of that was in my notes. I should get back to this. (laughs) All right. So uh, I want to share my testimony with you because I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. I know church. And uh, God has used Luke 15 to radically change my life and my ministry. In order to do so, I need to give you like a brief uh, two-minute seminary lecture, if I could do that with you, if that's okay. I'm gonna do it anyway, it's all right. (laughs) So there's these two $15 theological words that you have to understand for you to understand uh, Luke 15 and my story. It's the words sodalic and modalic. Just curious, has anyone ever heard those words before? No, well now you have. Congratulations, you get a seminary degree. All right, so so Sodalic ministry refers to the sowing, the reaping, the sending work. Um, It's the go, it's uh, what apostles, prophets, and evangelists do. In the business world, we would just say Sodalic business is uh, starting up a new business, being an entrepreneur, uh, creating a new market. When Apple invented a product category called the iPad, That was a sodalic business move. They created something out of nothing. You get the point, right? We also have another form of ministry called modalic form of ministry. It's the keeping, it's the caring, it's the shepherds and teachers. Now here's the deal. Whether you're in business or whether you're in the church, you need both. It's no good to have a business that is really good at creating products and creating markets and bringing in new customers if you don't have Customer service to fix things when things go bad, right? If you only have a customer service department, but you don't have new products and new customers, how long is your business going to last? Not very long, right? And it's like that with the church. We should have both of these modes or both of these arms in ministry. I have two boys. They like to play football. We throw the football all the time, and I throw with my right arm because I'm right-handed. The other day, I thought, let me throw with my left hand to see how that's going to work out. It went in the street. You know why, Because I never throw the football with my left hand. Unfortunately, most pastors are trained how to throw their football with the right arm only which which word do you think we 're trained in? The modalic form is is how i 'm trained, how Caleb was trained, how Ethan was trained, how our churches are formed, and we 've been under this um, we call it the 1,700-year wedgie that Constantine gave the church, <laughs> right? So, so for 300 years, it's illegal to be a Christian. And then in the year, I think, 314 or 320, the emperor Constantine, in the Edict of Milan, Google it, he made uh, Christianity the official religion of Rome like that, just like that. And so suddenly, like, One day, everyone is Christian just because of the nation they live in. Imagine that. I don't have to use your imagination, but that comes from Rome, not America. What happened to the church when suddenly everyone in Rome in the 300s is Christian? Do you need apostles? Do you need missionaries? Do you need prophets? Do you need evangelists? No. Why? Because everyone's Christian because Constantine said so. What do you need? Shepherds and teachers. You need teachers to tell people what they believe since they're now Christian and you need shepherds to take care of them. And for 1700 years, this has been the predominant way the church has thrown the football, just with this arm right here. Modalic ministry, Modalic ministry. You can walk into almost any church in America and you will find a boardroom with a shepherd or teacher at the head followed by other shepherds and teachers. The apostles aren't even there because they they got ADD and they'd rather just go do something else. The prophets have been killed because <laughs> no one likes the prophetic words that come from, from prophets in, in, uh, in modalic ministries. But the evangelists love people enough to hang around and there's like usually one at the corner of the table barely hanging on. That's most churches. And that's the way most churches spend their money. It's the way most churches staff. It's the way most per- churches spend their time is modalic, modalic, modalic. When I was about 12 years ago to today, October 27th, 2007, 12 years today, my wife and I were called by God to quit our jobs, sell most of our stuff, pack the rest of it in a U-Haul, and we left our hometown of Wichita Falls, Texas, where we had been born, raised, grown up, spent 21 years in the same church our entire life, and we moved to San Antonio, seven uh, hours away, knowing nobody, Because my former youth pastor was moving to plant a church. And he said, I don't have money. I don't have a job for you. But I would love for you to come help us win the lost, disciple to found, and build a church. Do you want to pray about it? We prayed about it. And the Lord said, yes, you should do that. And so we were young and dumb enough to do it. So 12 years ago today, we left our hometown in tears. There was pain. There were gospel goodbyes. We said bye to relationships we had for 20 years to go to a town where we knew nobody where there was no job and no paycheck to, to plant a church. Purely sodalic, we showed up, and we had no building, we had no budget, we had nothing, because we're planting a church out of nothing. We knew nobody. And so all we knew how to do is meet people who are far from Jesus, remember their name, and pray for them. And so that's how we started our church. We, uh, it was eight people. It was my, my pastor and his family, his parents, and my wife and I. It was the Van Pays and the Wits. That was us, just eight of us. And we would meet like every uh, Sunday morning and then we'd meet again like on Saturday. Uh, we'd, so we'd just meet on the weekends and all we would do is say, who have you met? What's their story? How can we pray? And we got a roll of butcher paper that was 12 feet long, taped it on the wall and we would just, we wrote our names first and then we wrote all the names of people we were meeting and every week we would gather <laughs> and we would put names of people that we had met in the community who didn't know Jesus that we were meeting And we'd start to pray for them. Over the course of several months, this group grew from 8 to 35 people. And by the end of, I think by February, we had over 1,200 names on this wall. 1,200 people that all of us had met. We knew their name, knew their story. They knew about us, and they were far from Jesus. And all we knew how to do was fast and pray for them. February tenth, two 2008 rolls around. We decide we're going to start this church We um, get a lease at a school for like a couple of months. We send some flyers, we go tell everybody, hey, you know, we've been talking to you for a couple of months, do you wanna come to this church plant? And to our surprise, I don't think anyone's gonna show up, 287 people showed up on our first day. It's crazy. Five weeks later was Easter. Our first Easter, we had 349 people show up. We did not know what to do. (laughs) We didn't have any money. None of us were getting paid. I was, uh, you know, we were, like, filling out applications for Home Depot and the Apple Store. And, like, like th- this was all just literally meet people far from Jesus and pray. And then they all showed up. Within, I think, a few months, we had over 50 people give their life to the Lord. We're baptizing in, like, a, a feeding trough. I mean, it was really crazy. And then there was, like, now we got to teach them about Jesus. And we had, uh, we literally had people who, who. There's kids in the room, so I can't say, but there are people who are like, far from God, who do not vote like you, (laughs) who do not marry like you, showed up, got saved, and wanted to learn about Jesus. And now we had to figure out, how do we disciple somebody who's married to the other gender? And like, they like legitimately got saved. It was just an incredible time. Between, within four years, we grew from those eight people to 887. We couldn't find one more to make it a cool 888. In four years, I don't know how it happened, but it happened, and we did what every church does at that point, we need to build a building. So we hired this consultancy company to figure out where we should build this building, how much it should be, what it should look like, and who were all the people, and I don't know how they figure all this out, but there's people out there, this is their job. So they did this demographic study, they emailed us the report, And we got it, we printed it, we didn't look at it, and we did what every um, responsible church staff does. We said, let's go to Chick-fil-A for a church staff meeting. (laughs) Because Christian chicken just tastes way better, right? So we go to Chick-fil-A, and this is 2011. The spicy chicken sandwich has just come out. Has your life been changed yet by the spicy chicken? It's so wonderful. (laughs) I'm going to add that on my contract next time. So we go, and I order a spicy chicken and a Dr. Pepper. It was a glorious day. It was like the mountain of transfiguration. I met God that day in Chick-fil-A. <laughs> we're sitting there, and our youth pastor Seth is there, and my pastor John is there, and we all get our food, and we're, and we're excited to eat this new spicy chicken that no one's ever had before. And I bite into it, and I did. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit or the the spice or something. And I'm just enjoying this food. I know like I like to eat I know I don't look like it. I like to eat and, we're, and I look at Seth. Seth's having a great time. And I look at my pastor, and he's pushed his food away. And he's weeping, like shoulders bouncing, snot coming down on the table, face red, can't control himself. Weeping. And it's lunchtime at Chick-fil-A. Have you been in Chick-fil-A at lunchtime? There is like a million people trying to get into that joint. And they're all looking at my pastor, who has lost it. And I thought, did someone text you about someone dying? I don't know what's going on. And I said, John, what's wrong? And he pointed to a sheet of the paper. And I don't know how they figured this out, but they they figured out that within five miles of our church, they estimated that there were about 70,000 people who did not know Jesus, who were not affiliated with any church, who, through surveys, I don't know how they did it, but they figured out, Within, our, within five miles of our church, there were 70,000 people who were going to spend an eternity apart from God unless something happened. And we had always known, it was the suburbs of San Antonio that were growing and it was fast. We always known there was a lot of people around us, but we never saw like a number that it was like 70,000. And the reality of 70,000 people being within our fingertips, possibly spending an eternity in hell apart from the love of God, Just hit my pastor like a ton of bricks. And the result was he lost his appetite, pushed away his chicken, and just wept. Now, I know this is church and it's generally not the place where people are honest. But if I could be honest with you, the only thought going through my mind at the time was I wonder if he's going to eat the rest of his sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) True story. That was my first thought. I'm not proud of it, but I really liked that sandwich. And if he wasn't gonna eat it, we probably shouldn't throw it away. And God really convicted me that day. Within four years, I went from sell everything, move seven hours away, I will go anywhere, Lord, I will tell anyone, I will do anything at whatever cost, I will do it for you, Lord. Four years later, no concern for the lost. My pastor had kept it, it had grown stronger in his heart. But I got so overwhelmed by the modalic responsibilities of keeping up with a fast growing church. The thing about Sunday, A sucker comes every seven days. And it's a lot of work. And I just allowed the modalic nature of church to come in. And if we let it, because there will always be people with problems. There will always be people who are sick. There will always be people who need to be, um, you know, educated in Bible studies. And there will always be that. It will always be there. But if we let it, we can allow the modalic need of the church push out the sodalic call that the Spirit puts on his people. And for me, at the fastest-growing church in America in 2016, we were named by Outreach Magazine the number one fastest-growing church in America. People every week were calling, asking us to do interviews and flying um, pe- us around the country to tell people of all the success that we were doing. We had no clue. Hey, it was like a fluke. No clue what we're doing. And even in the midst of that, I had lost God's heart for the lost. And it took this exchange at Chick-fil-A to really like get my attention. I walked away from there, and I prayed this really dangerous prayer inspired by Jesus cleansing the temple. And I said, Jesus, I give you permission to flip the tables that I've set up in my heart. If I have put up anything in the temple of my heart that does not glorify you and is not in congruence with your kingdom, I give you permission to make a whip, drive out the animals, drive out the money changers, and to set it right. I didn't think he would answer that prayer. Do not pray that prayer if you don't want him to make a whip and turn the tables of your life. He did. Through a long series of events I don't have time to get into, the Lord eventually... Um, put a call on me and my wife and, and, and was asking us to, to resign from this church that we helped build, that I named, that I was the number two guy at. There's no reason for me. Uh, I could have been there the rest of my life and been fat and happy and it would have been wonderful. And the Lord said, you need to resign. The church has gotten in the way of seeking first the kingdom. And so you need to step away from the church in order to get realigned. I didn't want to do that. I was a number two guy. I had a, a lot of leadership in the church without any of the number one responsibility. Like, my pastor never slept. I slept like a baby because, like, that's what the number two guy, like, Ethan gets a lot of sleep. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not that guy. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't want to be the number one guy. That's awful. And God was like, no, you need to step away. And, um, and, and it called me to, to leave this church that I deeply loved. I loved it too much. I put it above the heart of God, and He called me to go uh, downtown San Antonio. One of the first people I met, his name was Ray. He was about a month older than me. He was homeless. He was schizophrenic, and he was suicidal. He was cutting himself. We would be in um, like 90 degree heat, and he would wear a hoodie. And and I, I figured out the reason why he would wear a hoodie is to cover up the scars on his arms. And I asked him about it, like, why are you trying to do that? And he said he believed that God didn't love him. And so he was just going gonna to do it to end his misery on, on earth. I shared the gospel with him. He believed it. He got saved. And, like, a radical transformation started happening in his life. I started discipling him. And I gave him a Bible, and I said, let's read the book of John. Why don't you read chapter one? Show up next week. We'll talk about it. And I was really excited to like find my new sodalic love, and I found this person far from God, and I shared the gospel with him. And I had this burden, and I was like, all right, Lord, we're back on track. And then Ray showed up, and he didn't read John one. And I'd get kind of mad and frustrated, because this was all about me learning how to be a pastor again, and this was my success story. And after like three weeks of getting frustrated with Ray not reading John one, and I'm thinking, how am I going to disciple? this guy if you wouldn't even read the bible and I flat out in anger asked him bro do you even want to love Jesus like like I'm not proud of this but like why haven't you read John 1 and he says because I can't read he couldn't read he didn't even know how to write his name his name was Ray it's three letters he like could not write his name And so the Lord said, Drew, you need to teach him how to read. So I began to teach him how to read with the Bible. It was really profound to see him learning how to read. And then, um, like I remember we read, like, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And he read that, and then he started to comprehend, wait a minute, while I was still a sinner? And it, it was the most wonderful experience to see that. And then one day, he stopped showing up to our regular meets. You're having trouble hearing me? I'm sorry. Can you show me up a little, Caleb? Uh, I'll talk louder. One day, he, sh- he, sh- he uh, stopped showing up, and I didn't know what happened. And so I went by where he was staying with, with a friend, and I wrote a note for him, and I said, hey, Ray, meet me back here. He didn't show up. After a couple of days of this, I got really nervous that maybe he finally did something to himself, and one night, I was going to bed. It was about 11 o'clock, and me and my wife were getting in bed, and I just was overwhelmed with this feeling of, where's Ray? What's going on? Something's wrong. And I would just pray for him, and then I, I just, I need to go find him. So I decided, I started putting my clothes on, and, and my wife said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go find Ray. She goes, "True. it's 11.30 at night. You can't go downtown in San Antonio and just start looking for a homeless schizophrenic guy. That's not safe. And I was like, I don't care. I've got to go find him. Something's wrong. And I have learned enough in marriage to go. Usually the Holy Spirit speaks to me through my wife. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I got back in bed, and I tried to fall asleep. I didn't sleep very well. The next morning, I woke up, and I was like, I'm not going to go to work. I need to go find Ray. And I spent the entire day in my car driving around the city. And I would pray, and I would say, Lord, where should I go? And I kid you not, you may think I'm crazy. I don't care. I heard the Lord say, take this exit. So I would take that exit. We'd be on a road I'd never been on. I'd say, Lord, where should I go? And he'd say, turn left. I'm like, yes, sir. And I turned left. And like, as clear as I've ever heard God speak to me, I heard God telling me where to drive. And I would show up to like Bill Miller Barbecue, and I'd think, okay, Ray's going to be in there. And I'd walk in, and he's not there. And then I'd get in my car, and I was like, all right, Lord, where, where else? And I spent the entire eight-hour day doing that. And every time I'd show up to a place and I'm fully believing, okay, I'm going to find him. He's going to say, how'd you know I was here? I'd say, God told me, like, revival's going to break out. Everyone's going to get saved. It's going to be amazing. And I'd walk in and he wouldn't be there. Around 4.30, I get in my car and the reality of, like, I think I just spent an entire day trying to find a homeless person set in. And I began to wonder, what in the world am I doing? And someone from my previous church had texted me and they said, Hey, this Sunday, we had over 1,000 people for the first time. And Hobby Lobby had just bought a $2 million piece of land and donated it to the church in a prime area of town, and they were going to build a new building and all this stuff. And I began to wonder in that car that day, did I just make a massive pastoral career mistake by leaving a church that is going places... And I just spent the entire day trying to find a homeless person. Like, What am I doing? And I felt like a complete failure that day. And I prayed and I said, Lord, what am I doing? And I very clearly heard the father say, Son, now you know what it's like to leave the 99 and to go find the one. Now you know what it's like to tear up the house to look for the coin. Now you know what it feels like to stand on the front porch, aching and waiting for the particle to return home. That day I got in my car thinking that I was going to go find Ray. And I didn't find Ray that day. But what I found was God's heart for people. That day has drastically changed my life. It's changed how I parent. It's changed how I'm a husband. It changed how I pastor and how we planted a church was we can never lose God's heart for people. I I never want to get in that place again where I'm so overwhelmed by the modalic that I have lost God's heart for people. The question I'd want to ask you today is, who's your ray? Do you have a ray in your life that you're praying for, that you're fasting for, that you're tearing the house up to find, that you're investing in. I think there's a good chance that some of you, you may be prone to what I'm prone to, which is I tend to be more like the older brother on the back porch, trying to do the right thing, somehow thinking that because I'm doing the right thing, I'm in the father's family, completely lost the heart of the father. The crazy thing about the story of uh, of that son is the only way we know the whereabouts of the younger son that he has found pigs in prostitution is because of the older brother. And he says, this son of yours. The detachment from the family that the older brother has. Here's what I know. If the older brother knew that he was in the family because of the love of the father and that's it, not because of his religious activity in the field, but because just the father loved him, if he actually loved the father and had the heart of the father and he knew where his younger brother was and what he was doing, where do you think that, young, that older brother would have been? He would have been out dragging that younger brother back home, talking some sense into him. But instead, he knew exactly where his younger brother was But he's busy in the field working for dad. And the story begins with the father on the front porch pleading and hoping, waiting for the younger son to come home. The story ends with the father on the back porch pleading with his other son to come in and get some cake. Who do you think the lost son is in the parable? Most people think it's the younger son. The lost son is the one on the back porch who has no clue that the father's heart's been suffering and that the father's heart is now singing because the lost is now found. The more I pastor, the more I spend in church, my temptation is not alcohol and drugs and all the things that we would associate with the younger son. My temptation, if there's not guardrails in my life, if there's not people regularly reminding me of the heart of God. My temptation is to be like the older brother who gets consumed with the modalic forms of ministry or relationship or church, and I begin to get angry and frustrated with things that God does not get angry or frustrated with. There's a great song by Hillsong, and it's break my heart for what breaks yours, There's just a line in that, and that's become a prayer of mine. It's like, Lord, I don't want to get all turned up by things that don't matter in the church. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And if your heart breaks for people like Ray, I will leave a thousand people a thousand times to go find the homeless, schizophrenic, suicidal guy on the streets who doesn't know that you love him because that's what you did. That's the good shepherd that Jesus is. Um, we have some uh, some questions on here I'd love for you to consider. And I think that in this moment, I flew all the way from Texas here, not even planned. Uh, some ch- plan- uh, changes happened and I w- wasn't even supposed to preach, but I know that I know that I know that God put this message on my heart to share my testimony with you because I think that God's up to something in your church in this time, in this community. There are probably thousands and thousands and thousands of rays all around you, and God already loves them. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and today we pray to the Lord of the harvest it's a light of fire in your hearts. I pray that God would light a fresh fire in my heart. I'm asking God, Lord, who's my next ray? Who's the next person that you want me to fast and pray for? I have to be asked that question of myself and I ask it of you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the convicting parable that Jesus gives us in Luke and that he reveals your heart towards the sinners and the tax collectors. And for those here who identify with that crowd, who identify with being the younger brother, or who identify with, with being the sinner or the person of very far from you, God, I pray that in this moment, they would sense your love and your presence and that you would replace guilt and shame with your peace. Lord, where there is spiritual death, I pray that you would bring a resurrection in life. Lord, for those like me who identify with the older brother, caught in the religious monotony of doing for you, I pray today that you would turn the tables in our hearts. And I pray that you would bring a revival in the deep, of each and every one of our hearts. Lord, forgive us of being distracted with things that don't matter. Lord, forgive us of being focused on the program of the church. Forgive us of where we have replaced the person of the kingdom with our program. Lord, I pray For a fresh wind, a fresh fire, that you would bring a new sense of your heart for this community. But not just on the staff level, not just with Caleb, not just with me or with Ethan or with anyone else, but Lord, down to the youngest child in this church. Lord, share your heart with us. Break our hearts. Make us people who weep when we see people far from you. But for those who are apathetic, I pray that you would stab them awake by the power of your spirit. But for those who are complacent with cultural Christianity, what I pray that you would bring such a strong distaste of that lie in slavery that they would desire freedom from it. Lord, and for those who are, who are, who have your heart and who are in the harvest field and who are seeking and saving the lost, just as you, God, I pray you would encourage, that you would reinforce, and that you would help them to not grow weary, in well doing. Lord, finally help us to remember that light always shines best where it is dark. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
0: Let's stand together and continue our worship through song.